what used to be the left is no longer the left, it's, it's the right. I was not satisfied with just being a Marxist, so, so I became Trotskyist. I, I went down, opened the door, he drew a gun and shot at my head. It passed right by my right ear. So every time you went out in public, you, have to, you had to every have... Time. Every single time, you had to have every time. armed guard. Even if I went to, to the uh, supermarket. Do you not fear death, then? No. You don't? No. Why? I'm going to die anyway. You ask the question, why does the left think that they are uh, in cahoots with Islam? I'm sure they'd been waiting to see if they could get me uh, on a legal charge, and when they couldn't, um, they decided to kill me. Better stand up for what you believe and fight, and never give up. That is my advice. Information covered up, censorship, corruption. The mainstream media have proven itself to be untrustworthy. I'm here to give a platform for debate, for truth, for open discussion. I'm introducing you to my podcast, Silenced with Tommy Robinson. Who exactly is Tommy Robinson or Stephen Gaxley-Lane? The problem is with Islamic radio. English far-right Islamophobic activists. Since then, there's been organised protests across the country in London, Manchester, Leeds. People in their thousands are marching for the Lars Hedegaard is a Danish journalist and author. He established the Danish Free Press Society in 2004, which was turned into the International Free Press Society in 2009. Originally a high school teacher, he also worked as a journalist. Lars is known as a critic of Islam. In 2007, he took part in the International Counter Jihad Conference in Brussels. In 2011, he was convicted of hate speech under Article 266B of the Danish Penal Code, and he was fined. He appealed the verdict, and in 2012, to which the Supreme Court acquitted him. Lars stands by his opinions and was voted one of the top 50 2013 Danish opinion leaders in a survey commissioned by Denmark's leading daily broadcast newspaper. I'm Tommy Robinson. Welcome to my latest episode of my podcast, Silenced. I'm joined today by author, historian, and journalist, Lars, Lars Hedegaard. Did I get that right? More or less. <laughs> I tried it <laughs> 10 times before we come on. Oh, that's great. But um, Lars, I, I first met Lars when I started the English Defence League. When I looked, I was, I was in fear, and I looked at other people who were talking about the problems Islam was bringing to Europe. Mm. Lars was one of the lead voices. We met up in the early days of my English Defence League, activism um it's a pleasure to be sitting with you again today Lars I know you've been through a lot I would like to hear your life story so that people understand the length you went to to defend free speech um but can we start in your early days I want to start off with your upbringing I know you I know you've changed political ideas many uh, across your spectrum of life mm. at one point it was Marxism I'd like to hear what what brought you to Marxism and um, in your early days of life I think we have to start with my childhood. Yep. I was born in a working class family. 
my father was a house painter. My mother was a, I think you call it, homemaker. Um, homemaker housewife? Housewife. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, we were poor. Uh, lived uh, five people. The parents and two kids uh, in two rooms without a toilet. No hot water, no running water. Uh, except for cold water, which we had to to wash or bathe in occasionally. Um, um, I early on in my life thought something was wrong, something was unjust, and uh, there had to be a better life. So. I decided that I tried to get an education, which is what I did. I was the first one in, in the family to go to uh, university, um, where I studied history and got a degree. Um, I eventually became a teacher in... Uh, the gymnasium, if you know that, what that is. The gym for fitness. <laughs> no? Okay. The gym. <laughs> I was thinking that's a bit different as a historian. Absolutely no fitness. <laughs> okay. But it's a, a prep school for university. Oh, okay. Um, and I was also qualified to teach university. Um, I did that for four years. I didn't like it. Well, I don't like to teach. You don't like to... Can I ask, you know, when you went to university, did you notice a difference between many of the people you met there in their upbringing and your upbringing? Because was it common for people from such poverty, pov uh, poor upbringings to end up making it to university? In no, the sun? no, no. So you were, you were mixing them with children who had lived more privileged lives, would you say? Yeah, these were sons and daughters of dentists and doctors and lawyers and... Of capitalists and people of, uh, with money. Did that shape? Did that help? Sh did that shape your view of the injustice of the work? The difference between the working class and the the upper class. Yeah, it did to some extent. Um, so I um, very early on, I think I was fourteen, when I started reading reading Karl Marx. Um, I went to the public library in the town of Horsens, where I was born and grew up, and read all I could about Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels and, and uh, whatnot, and became a, a, a Marxist. Could, could you describe for people who, who don't understand what a Marxist is, what that means to become a Marxist? What, what ideas does that bring? Briefly, it's a... It's a um, an understanding of society as divided between classes. There is an upper class and there is an underclass. And the upper class exploits and oppresses the underclass. Uh, that was not the way Marx uh, said it, but he, he talked about the capitalist and the proletariat and uh, 
I belong to the proletariat. And I, so, I wanted to use my education to promote the, the, the cause of the oppressed and exploited. How, how do Marxists view, how do they view the way they'll get to their end goal? What, what's, how will they bring down the system, essentially? Well, by force. So that's the idea. So by, to force and break the system that's there. Well, if you can't do it by the general strike or the vote, you'll have to do it by force. Okay. And um, I came to the conclusion that that would be the only way possible. So I was not satisfied with just being a Marxist, so, so I became Trotskyist. Which, can, you, can you explain what that is? That is the, the very left of the communist movement. Um, as far left as you can go. It's hard to get any <laughs> further left. Yeah, okay. Um, so I was that for, I believe I was 40 years old. 40? 40. So this is like a, you're a revolutionist? What? Would you class yourself as a revolutionist? Yes. Yes. <clears throat> so I, I'm a late bloomer um, in the sense that I, I continue to believe in this until I was 40. Um, then, meanwhile, I went to America and lived in California for a few years, became a member of the Trotskyist Socialist Workers' Party, and I met some of the, some of the uh, old-timers, one of them who, who knew Trotsky and who had known Lenin and... Uh, can you explain who Trotsky is again? So some people who are hearing, what's a Trotskyist? Who is Trotsky? You don't think people know? No, so, some may not. Some may not. Some may listen to this, may just to, so that they understand uh, fully. Trotsky was the one of the three most important uh, leaders of the revolution in 1917, together with Lenin and Stalin. So Trotsky was the, he was the, the real organizer of the uprising that brought down the democratic governments uh, in October or November 1917. He was the organizer of the Red Army uh, and led the Red Army uh, uh, during the civil war that lasted until 1921. Um, he continued to believe in what he called the permanent revolution, which means that it was not good enough for to, to have a revolution in Russia and had to spread it to Germany and France and, and the most advanced uh, countries in Europe, um, as opposed to Stalin, who believed in socialism in one country. So it, it came to problems between the two, and eventually uh, Trotsky was dethroned and uh, kicked out of the country and eventually murdered in Mexico in 1941 for opposing Stalin. 
So Trotsky wanted to spread his message worldwide. Basically. I beg your pardon? Trotsky wanted to bring his bring his ideas worldwide. Yes, he did. Stalin was happy where he was. Yeah. He founded uh, something called the Fourth International, um, which really did not take off. So uh, it was a one of the great lost causes of history. Okay. So you're, you're in California, you're 40, you're linking up with all the old school and all the all the militants, I guess, would you say? A bigger pun? Would you say they were the militants? Yeah, it's one of your countrymen. Uh, James P. Cannon was the same, who was, uh, I think I met him when he was uh, 82, and full of fire, and um, he was originally one of the three leaders of the American Communist Party, but was expelled uh, because he was uh, a Trotskyist. Okay. So then, watch, watch, am I right to say you change your opinions? You change your worldview? I eventually realized that uh, what I had believed in uh, was a shall I say mistake a mistake a mistake but is, is that a hard thing to realise when you've been committed to something for 20 years was that difficult for yourself to actually accept that okay this isn't beneficial or it isn't this isn't yes it was I mean you can't just do that actually. no I couldn't it's a hard thing to do but I, but I um, I mean I and other people I think have to realise that if what you believe in does not work, if your description of the world is that it doesn't make sense, uh, you've got to, to believe in something else. You've got to come to your senses and uh, study what is really going on. Now, of course, um, uh, what I notice these days is that what used to be the left. It's no longer the left, it's, it's the right. What yes. we believed in was free speech, equality, um, equality between the sexes, justice, anti-racism, um, and uh, it's sad to notice that today, what the ones who call themselves such this have completely abandoned these concepts. The worst thing is that they now have introduced a new sort of racism where they want to divide people uh, by the color of their skin. They want to group people together and say, you belong to this group and if you do belong to this group, you have certain rights and you have a certain um, recriminations against other groups and therefore you are uh, entitled to certain privileges. Is this cultural Marxism? Except for the fact that it has nothing to do with Marxism, but <laughs> you, can, you can call it that. The oppressor versus the oppressed, 
the the whites are the oppressors in the new leftist idea? No, what it really is is that the ruling class never disappeared. The what class? Ruling. The ruling class, okay. Never disappeared. But it's just... Um, it just... Um, it's taken on a, a different mantle, calling themselves leftists and making people believe that they are leftists, that they believe in, in equality and solidarity and, and, and whatnot. And uh, what we see now is a conglomeration of uh, a capital that dominates almost everything. You know, the, the, the world is owned by just a few uh, uh, capitalist uh, foundations like BlackRock, BlackRock State Street, Vanguard. They have their fingers in everything and, and the way they maintain controls and the way they augment uh, their capital is by dividing people into believing that uh, blacks are oppressed and whites are oppressors and this group, women, are oppressed and the new thing is that uh, queers and homosexuals are oppressed and they all have to, to fight against each other um, and as long as that happens nobody would even think about them about them who are breaking who are controlling everything yeah and so the same thing goes for for Islam yeah because getting on to Islam because so, so, as a because many on the left in the modern left all are defenders of Islam they yeah. they support Islam they support the Islamization and they actually attack and critique and criticize anyone who dares to speak up. So if you're in California, you, you're, you're over 40, you're still a, a, wanting to be a revolutionist. What, when did Islam come onto your radar? Into my radar? Yeah. At which point did you think um, there's a problem? I think it was, uh, was in uh, 95, thereabouts. Yep. Where, you know, as a historian, I'm interested in uh, developments in society. And I had noticed that we had had uh, immigration from all sorts of people, all kinds of cultures, uh, Asians, Japanese, uh, Sikhs, uh, Argentinians, Italians, whatnot. Chinese, um, we never had any problem because these people, even if they did not want to, say, assimilate into Danish culture, which is all right, they all wanted to behave in a decent way and, and uh, respect our laws. And now we have a new uh, uh, wave of immigration, the, the Muslims who absolutely refused to to not only assimilate but, but even integrate 
they came with their own laws, their own culture, and they did not want to have anything to do with us. They'd like to live here and 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 uh, get the benefits of uh, our society, free education, free health care, uh, and all sorts of things. Um, but they never wanted to become Danes or citizens, really, of our society. Um, so, why, do we ask the question, why does the left think that they are uh, in cahoots with Islam? Yeah. Like modern, the modern left now, the modern left defend now. Islam. Um, my father, who was a socialist, would not have uh, would not have believed that. Well, now the Socialist Workers Party are the main pushers of uh, defending Islam <laughs> yes, in the UK. I, yes, I know that. So uh, I know that. What's changed? They believe that uh, even though they don't want themselves to to, to live uh, as Muslims, they don't want to adhere to the Sharia law. They believe that um, as Muslims do not want to integrate in our society, they are natural allies in the overthrow of the the democratic order. So they see them as allies in getting their end goal. So they're, yeah. used, they're using each other? They're looking to use well, each other? Well, Muslims are using the socialists. And Muslims uh, are using the socialists. And are the socialists looking for allies in, in causing a revolution and overthrowing the capitalist system? They see the Muslims as our allies because they want no part of the capitalist system because they want their own system as well. Yeah, but I mean, the socialists don't understand that. I mean, they, they should have... I learned from what happened in Iran. And Lebanon, as well. Lebanon. What happened, what happened, it? What happened in Iran? Well, um, I've talked to several communists from, from Iran uh, who uh, supported the Ayatollah Khomeini's takeover. When was that? That was in 79? Yep. And they were happy for about uh, a week. And then he killed them all. They killed them. So the left, so the communists help the revolution for the Islamic revolution. Once the Muslims got in total control, or the radicals got in control of Iran, they wiped out the communists to help them. Every one of them. Every and of course, the same is going to happen here. In Europe. Europe, yes. Denmark, uh, the USA, England. It's just, uh, they don't understand, they don't want to understand. They don't want to learn from history because the same similar things happen in Lebanon as well. Yeah, wherever the left. Are. So, when did you, when you realise this, you realise there's a problem with Islam. There's a difference between the Muslims who are now coming in compared to other immigration. What did you do? Did you start to talk about it? Did you write about it? What was your actions? I wrote about it, um, and at the time I was. Um, writing for a couple of newspapers. Large, large publications in Denmark? Yeah, yeah. So you was a mainstream journalist for a large publication? Mainstream, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had a job as a commentator with the the big uh, conservative uh, newspaper in Copenhagen called Benningske. 
Um, that's strange. That, that's a, so you was writing for the conservative newspaper, but you was off the left. You was a commentator still with still with left wing. No, I I've changed. Oh, this is that. after you've changed. So after, after you've changed. Okay, after you've changed. And I was um, okay. I was kicked out eventually uh, after several warnings uh, in what was that? Two thousand eight. Yeah. Uh, because I wrote too much about Islam. So this was the left wing newspapers. You were writing about Islam. Yeah. And they said, you've got to go. You have to go, my friend said. Um, we can't have that. Um, what was you writing about Islam? Was writing, what, what was it you was writing? That, that, so what I mean is... I was writing pretty much what I'm telling you now. That's it. So nothing extreme, just here's a difference. There's problems here. Problems about immigration and uh, what is eventually going to happen to our society and... The same thing that's happened to every other society in the world where Islam appears. And what is that that's happened? And what will happen, in your opinion? <clears throat> well, do you know Bat Yes. Yeah. Who told me many years ago that whenever there is a, an immigration influx into a, uh, an infidel society. They start out as a small group, a few hundred, a few thousand, and because they will not uh, abandon their ideology and, and their claim to power, they will eventually grow and intimidate the population, the, the politicians, the judges, and little by little, their way of thinking, their Sharia law, will overtake secular and democratic law. It just happened in Denmark now. This is the pressure put on the Danish government to bring in a blasphemy law due to pressure from the Muslim community of threats of riots, violence yeah, and terrorism. Yeah. So, this happened and uh, we'll never get rid of that law again. So it's becoming a Sharia compliant country? Yes, I just wrote a piece today uh, about um, the fact that Denmark is now officially a part of the House of Islam which is, you know, the House of Islam uh, is where the law of Muhammad holds sway. We don't have it all now, but I mean, the, the very fact that we bent... Our principles of freedom of speech, yeah. we bent them for... And we the, gave up freedom of speech, which means that the, the imams can now come and, and demand, I want this and this and this. And the politicians will um, acquiesce. It's, it's funny you say because I got in a taxi when I, I was in. I'm in Denmark, so I got in a taxi, and I asked. He was a Pakistani taxi driver, and I asked him his view on the new law. And he said, "We need the law to prevent people disrespecting Islam." And he wanted the law. Mm. And we drove past a, a pub that had lots of rainbow flags. So it's a gay pub. Yeah. And I said, "What about the rainbows? Mm. What do you think?" He goes, "We need a law." So then I said. So you also want a law that will ban gays? He said, yes, I want that of law. Course. And then, then he said, he'd asked his wife, 
he'd asked his wife for a second wife in Denmark. So it's very evident that if if you, they what they want will be similar to what Sharia is calling for, and they won't stop. So if they put pressure on the Danish government now to surrender free speech, mm-hmm. they'll look at the next goal or the next country. It might have started with Denmark. Next will be Sweden. Next, they'll want all European countries to surrender their free speech. That's of course. And and when you start, so you're you're at a conservative newspaper. Um, what happens next in your in your uh, talking about Islam? Uh, God knows. I read a few books. How how many's a few? How many books have you authored uh, about Islam? No, just in general. How many books have you wrote? Um, ten, eleven, I think. Okay. No, not about Islam. No, but okay, but then you wrote. You wrote a book about Islam? Four books. Four books. And, yeah, pretty much what I did. And did that cause you problems? When when, when, when would you say the ante was upped? When, when would you say, because I, I know you in, ended up living under threat. When did that happen? Nine, uh, 2013. 2013. Okay, so, because in 2009, if I can bring us back just before this, mm. when I set up the English Defence League, yeah. you travelled to England. To I did. But why? Can you explain that? Yeah, because I had a friend in America, uh, Bjorn Larson. I remember Bjorn, rest in peace, Bjorn. Yeah, sorry he died. Uh he asked me to go to England and and uh, find out what the hell you were all about. <laughs> <laughs> so he sent he sent you to report back to who this movement. I wrote a report uh, about what I thought, and um, you'll remember we we drove around. <laughs> We drove the wrong way for two hours. <laughs> the wrong way for two hours. <laughs> two hours. So this Kev Carroll's Kev Carroll was driving. So yeah. we're in the car, and this is at the start of the English Defence League. We're travelling the country, going from meeting to meeting, with within communities, and we're in the back of the car. Oh, there's three of us in the back, and um, I think we were having a drink on the way. So we're all having a bit of a laugh. We're on the way, and then we realised. I started seeing signs for different towns, and I, I thought, Kev, where, where have you gone? We were supposed to go to a town called Bolton. Yeah. Remember? Yeah, yeah, that's it. It was, it was on the way to Bolton. Where had he gone? He'd gone two hours the wrong way. So I thought we'd got to nearly be there. when we arrived, and with 200 people, they were dead drunk. Remember? <laughs> because they'd been waiting. <laughs> they'd been waiting. Extra. <laughs> <laughs> we got them away for two hours, so then we had to put in the right direction. And obviously... Well, you know, I, I didn't write that in my report. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I do remember it though. It was funny. Uh, but no, uh, in uh, 2013, yep, February, uh, uh, somebody tried to kill me. Can you tell, take me through what happened? Um, yes, I was. Um, I was about to leave my home in Copenhagen. Frederiksberg, okay, which is surrounded by Copenhagen, and uh, to go to my job, which was in Malmo, Sweden, Amen. Uh, as an editor, and then somebody knocked on the door of 
was living on the f- first floor. And uh, I opened the window and he said, I have a package for you. And he had a red uh, jacket like a, like a person. And I told him, I, I can't open the door because the uh, it doesn't work. You know, it's, you, I couldn't buzz him in. Okay. So I said, I'll, I'll go down and get the package. And I, I went down, opened the door. He d- drew a gun and shot at my head. Uh, it passed right by my right ear, like this much, which was good because I, I'm deaf on my <laughs> right ear. It was good then. <laughs> I was good. So, so I was um, more agile than he probably thought. So um, we fought a bit. I'm, yeah, I've read you began punching with him and fighting with him. Bigger pun? I've, I've read that you you began fighting with him. Yes, I did. It was an unequal fight because um, I was 70 and he was uh, 28. Um, and I'm, I, I have no military background, but I managed to, to uh, make him run away. Did he drop the gun? Yeah, at one point he dropped the gun. Did he on, fire any more bullets? On my side of the door. And I, of course, tried to shut the door. Then he put his foot in so I couldn't, I couldn't get rid of him. Then he got the gun and we fought some more. And I don't know what the hell happened. Except that uh, he managed to smash all my front teeth. Um which is a pity because it's an impediment to my speech. Okay. Uh, but I have uh, implants now. Um, oh, it's a nasty business. And did he say anything? Did he make any comments? No. Yeah. How, how, well, you've, you've said he was 28 years old. How, how, was he arrested? Do you know who he was? Yes, we do. He he uh, absconded out of the country immediately and went to uh, Turkey and eventually to the Islamic State. In Libya? Uh, well, Syria. Okay. Where he, he became the, the leader of the Islamic State's foreign terrorism. So he was high up in Islamic State. Uh, and so, Thanks. You've, had, you've had a knock on the door by a postman, he's fired off shots at attempting to kill you. Do, you. do you have a family, Lars? Yeah. You do? You have children? Yes, four. Had you, prior to this, prior to this assassination attempt, had your family ever, no. um, voice their concerns at, at your work essentially what you was doing were they worried or scared at, before this did they see did they see the, the 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 consequences of what i think me and you would have known the time you there's a consequence of talking about this subject were your family aware of those no i don't think so mm. what about after the assassination attempt yeah after sure. were they 
strong. What happened from that? Did what happened from the police? Were you given protection? Did you have to relocate? I had to relocate. Um, I was immediately I was uh, driven around the country uh, for about a month by the police. Like the security services? Yeah. Driven around as in from one safe house to another safe house? Yeah. And then um, later on I had a security detail of uh, two, two people to... I met you once in, I'm not sure which year, maybe two, 2014, 15, and there was two armed men with you the whole time. Yeah. We went for food, they guarded the door. You ended up you end up with that detail every day. Yeah. What about when you was at home? Where were they? Big one. Where was the security detail when you was at home? When you was in your house, they were about ten minutes away. Okay. Um, and uh, so every time you went out in public, you have to you had to every have, time every single time you had to have every time. armed guard, even if I went to to the uh, supermarket. How is that? How how is that to live with? To go see, I'm guessing you said you've got f children. To go see your children, you'd have mm. to turn up with armed guards. Yeah. What effect does that have on f on your family? Was it a lot of pressure? Mm, I don't know. Uh, I mean, except for one time, I was we the whole family went. My kids. Uh, and then their boyfriends went to Prague okay. for a week. Uh, and, uh, of course, we had a security detail of eight uh, guards in Prague running around all the time. And then when we had to leave from the airport, there was a, a whole SWAT scene <laughs> jumping in. Imagine getting with some. I'm thinking. Imagine getting with some girl when you go to meet her dad. He turns up with eight armed cards. With um, you get with his daughter. I'm laughing, but it's not funny. I I'm laughing. With it is machine guns, and then uh, I think my daughter started crying because of uh, she was scared about this. By that time, I was uh, used to it. Yeah, because you're the same in Italy. When I went there a few times living up in the mountains in a house there they would have the carabinieri would march around what's that what's the what's the carabinieri the, uh, the police okay the armed police and they would march around uh, the house at night um, so what, was, what I want to try to get people to understand is because Essentially, this is, you've exercised your freedom of speech. You're in a European country, a democracy, and you've used your platform to talk openly about problems around Islam. You've had an assassination attempt, and then you're living under 24-hour police protection. Yeah. Well, that's the deal now. Unfortunately, that is the deal, because I've just met another gentleman two days ago to do a podcast here who's living under the same right now in, this, in your same country. Can you say? The Danish cartoonist? 
as well. He had to have police protection. Kurt, yeah. Kurt, yeah. He had a police station in his garden. He had a police station in his garden. Yeah. Manned uh, 24-7. It's like uh, if I had one here. He manned 24 hours a day a police station in his garden because he drew a cartoon. Yeah. That's the way it goes. And, and um, you can only get used to it and all you can do is to continue doing what you do doing what you want to do and never give in that's why I want to speak to you last because I, th I think when you hear your story and you hear other people's stories who have done this they are inspirational because many would have folded many when they lost their jobs many when they come under the first attack especially assassination attempt they would have mm -hmm. stopped talking but you've never stopped. No. You just wrote an article this morning. <laughs> I've talked more. <laughs> you've talked more. Is that... Do you not fear death then? No. You don't? No. Why? I'm going to die anyway. So are you. You've accepted it. Why? Why fear? If you fear... You've given in and you've given them a victory. And I don't want to do that. This podcast is brought to you by Urban Scoop. Any support to carry on this work will be greatly appreciated. Please visit urbanscoop.news forward slash support us. Thank you. Let me rewind a little bit again. I believe you tried to... Is it? Is it called the pen? Is there a... A union for journalists that you tried to join. I'm, I'm looking because I'm, you started your own, the Danish Free Press Society. Uh, that's right. Um, I had a friend, uh, a woman who thought it would be a great idea for me to to join Pen. What is Pen? Uh, uh, it's a supposedly an organisation of uh, writers defending uh, free speech. Okay. And um, so I did. And when was that? I can't remember. Mm. Um, I did it reluctantly because I, I never thought I, I would be accepted. And I was right. Uh, immediately after my application, there was this uh, shit storm against me. <laughs> How yeah. can you have a person Lars like Hedegaard that? Lars is a Danish journalist and author. He established and the Danish Free Press Society as soon as I heard that, I withdrew which was turned into the International Free Press Society in 2009. Nevertheless, Originally a high school teacher, the he also next worked as a General Assembly Lars is known as a critic me. of Islam. In 2007, he took an international counter-jihad conference in and, Brussels. And uh, there was a... In 2014, a new animated film that he co-produced entitled Aisha and Mohammed um, was released. The film focused on the life of the 50-year-old Islamic Prophet Muhammad to a then child called Aisha, who was six years old. In 2011, in this organisation, didn't want you to have your freedom of speech. He had made critical remarks against the Free Speech Union in the UK. Have you heard of the Free Speech Union? Toby Young's Free Speech Union. I joined it. They refunded the money. 
He appealed to the I joined it every Sunday to be my money. Court You're the free speech union. Like, Last what are you doing? But, so, but that, that then the developed into... So when this happened, I believe you responded by, by forming your own equivalent. Is that right? Yeah. Can you talk to me about that? Um, it was not my idea. It was the idea of a member of uh, parliament uh, from the Danish People's Commission, Søren Karl, um, who kept pestering me uh, for about half a year. You have to start your own organization. And I said, I don't want to. But he came back and, and eventually forced me into starting the Free Press Society. And the Danish People's Party, so people understand, are the political party who are the only party really that actually believes in free speech in Denmark. Uh, yeah, there's another one. There's another one. But eventually, have you ever read what George Orwell wrote about Penn no. in 1946? What did he write? He was, he was at a meeting of a British Penn uh, and it turned out they were they were all Stalinists, and <laughs> they were not about free speech at all. Okay. It's a funny thing. So that's people with political ideas infiltrating organisations. Yeah. So Penn's a worldwide journalist. <coughs> it, it's yeah. not Danish. Okay. <coughs> okay. It is. Yeah. So then uh, politicians approached you, and you've set up the Danish Free Press Society. Is that right? Yeah. And Aya is the current president. Aya, our friend here. When she's not knitting. When she's not knitting. And it's the Danish Free Press Society who have... Um, who have been, I've been invited twice to Parliament, which I'm grateful for. That's right. I won an award. Yeah. And do you remember I said to you... Do you remember I said to you, what advice could you give me? Do you remember the advice you gave me in England? At that time when you come, I was young. I was 25 years old. Yeah. I've come off a building site mm. and now I'm running a street protest movement that's getting mass attention. Yeah. And I said, what advice can you give me? Do you remember what you said? No. No. You said, don't ever change and don't wear a suit. That's that, that's <laughs> right. And I remember looking at you when I first, when I was first, because it's the first parliament I'd ever spoken in. I'd spoken in. I was very honoured to be invited to Denmark's yeah. parliament. And I remember saying, Lars, I'm, I'm sorry. I know you said don't wear a suit, but I'm in parliament. <laughs> I've, I've had to put a suit on. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. You said stay real to the working class, basically. I found out. Yeah, because that's why they fear you. Yeah. I mean, the, the reason you are hated is that you are a genuine working class lad. And that's what they fear most of all. An uprising of the, uh, what Orwell called the, the pros. Yeah. Remember that? Uh, the, the peasant, what, what, what did we were looking at a day, it was the peasant's revolt, was it? In history in England, we were looking to work because we were looking because significantly that's what I, I believe they fear. They fear me because I can galvanize the working class. Yeah, I can bring them together of to course. listen and direct them into of action. Of course, and for that, I have to be crushed and destroyed. You have to be destroyed. Yeah, yes. Well, so you've had an assassination attempt on your life, you have 24 hour police guard, you continue your activism. Since the start of when you started looking and concerned about Islam, has, has Denmark changed anything? Is it going better? Is it going worse? Uh, it's gotten worse. 
very much worse. I mean, we have these uh, politicians who, before every election, they say we are in favor of a fair immigration policy. Um, and when they get into office, they don't do a thing. Strict and fair immigration policy. The immigration uh, continues regardless of who is in office. Uh, so I'd say the, the, the politicians do not really run this country. It's run by forces beyond everybody's control, including the politicians. Which forces do you think they are? Globalist forces. United Nations? More like the World, World Economic, Economic Forum. Forum. Um, Bill Gates. These are all unelected people who you say, you know, George Soros. I mean, people with lots and oodles and oodles of money uh, working in the, in, in the shadows. I'm sorry to say that that's what I think. Sounds like a conspiration. But I don't not. think it does anymore. What? I don't think it does anymore. I, uh, see, I think yeah. since COVID, especially since President Biden, all these different things, people are fully aware that there are people behind these politicians who are yeah. orchestrating and organising things. And our Soros has a son who's uh, also an asshole, and he has promised to basically wreck Europe I just read this today. Um, so, you know, people can go and vote as they please and it doesn't make a hoots of a difference. How do we change it then? Do you believe we can? Do you believe there's a... Only, I think, only by civil disobedience, uh, grassroots organising... And people who don't give a shit about what, what others uh, say about them, who help uh, self-help uh, groups, um, sharing their money between them, helping each other out. Building strong communities. Building strong communities. Which have been intentionally broken down. Yes, in absolutely. Sending their kids to schools that teach them uh, classics, math, history, English, that sort of thing, and, and um, hiring your own teachers. Homeschooling seems to be a topic that's coming up so much now because I can yeah. just look at what they've, they've tried to teach my children at their schools. It's total woke ideas. It's the big, the, the big thing now in, in the US, uh, homeschooling. Yeah, it's huge. But also... Uh, starting your own school which you can in Denmark by the way yeah you can you can have so-called free schools um no private schools and get grants off the government they are yeah by law I think uh, 70 percent paid by the government I bet the Muslim community have been bang on this a bigger one I bet the Muslim community have, have set up all their own free schools oh yes they have of course but so have uh, other people. 
Okay. That means you can you can send your kid to a school where you're guaranteed that will not be indoctrinated by by queer ideology and that sort of thing. I I think that's the way to go. And uh, if the government withdraws its funding, you will have to scrimp and pay yourself. Hire a teacher. It's a sad... Do you find it sad, the state that Europe's in now? Do you think we're... Just, what do you think of the resistance in Europe to these ideas? The resistance to Islamization, the resistance to the, to the woke... Um, ideas that are being pushed upon people do you see there's a a resistance still do you think that we'll overcome it uh, i don't know if we'll overcome it but i think there's a growing awareness of what's up i mean when i write something i i see a growing number of people uh reading it and uh approving of what I'm writing. Like there's a silent majority here who are aware of the problems but fearful still. Yeah, to. I'm I'm sure you're right then, yes. And they're right to be fearful, I think, when people hear stories like yourself as well. I beg your pardon? I think people are right to be fearful. I think they've uh, what they've tried to do in me many times is set an example to put fear into other people. Look what we can do to him. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So Lars, you've had assassination attempts. That's attempts from the Islamic community to silence you. Um, or followers of Islam to silence you. Have you faced any, what I call, lawfare? Have the courts come for you at any time for expressing your free speech? Um, yes, one time. Um, the thing was that the would-be assassin um, uh, the court decided that his name could not be mentioned. The man who tried to kill you? Uh, yeah. He weren't allowed to be mentioned, okay. No, I couldn't. Uh, <clears throat> eventually, he was arrested in uh, Turkey. Okay. And his name was all over the Turkish press. And by then, I thought it would be okay for me to say who he was. Um, I forget his name now. <laughs> okay. That's how far back it is. You remember his name? Basil Hassan. Bas yeah, it was Hassan. Hassan. That's right. Basil Hassan. So what, and you decided to name him? I named him. And uh, then I got a fine, uh, 27,000 kroner. Poor? <laughs> for, for mentioning the name. The man that tried to assassinate you, shot a gun, shot a bullet straight to your head, fought you, knocked your teeth out. You na he he <laughs> you've named him. Yeah. And you've, you've been taken to court. Right. Where, where's the logicness in this? I don't know. I don't know. They didn't even want you... Why didn't they want him named? Why couldn't he be named? What's the reasoning? Well, there? officially to protect his family. Oh, for God's sake. Um, to protect his family. Yeah, because they might, uh, might be sad. <laughs> but I, and, and so, you know, I complied with the order... <laughs> until I saw the name mentioned in the Turkish press, and I, was, I thought, well, then I can do it too. No, I couldn't. They actually prosecuted the victim of, a, of an Islamic assassination attempt 
for naming the Islamic assassin? No. Did you pay the fine? I didn't. Um, I have friends who... Okay, uh, they did. <coughs> what, what is 27,000? It's 27,000. What is that? 600? Uh, what is it? 4,000 pounds. Yeah. It doesn't really matter how much it is. It's the principle that a victim is having to pay for naming the, the perpetrator. Yeah. Right. I was not the only one. Um, many others who, who uh, mentioned the name uh, also got a fine of 27,000. Wow. I thought, that's insane. What about, <clears throat> what about, what's your experience been, is that the only court problems you've had with, is that the only court problems you've faced? Or has there been a... With the wrong? Yeah. Has there been other efforts to say? No, no, that's all. That's all. What about, um, what's your experience been with the media? When there was an assassination attempt, which is a, a terrorist attack. Yeah. When there's a terrorist attack on yourself, on your front door in your house, yeah. how did the media react to that? Oh, they were quite nice. Okay. For a couple of days. And then back to you. And then, then back to normal. It was like uh, in the lead articles in the papers said, it is a bad, bad thing to want to kill me. <clears throat> but he has also said many, many bad things. Uh, so it's understandable that that some people are mad at him, and then the whole thing was forgotten. And then you're taken to court. I can't believe that you can get taken to court from naming a would-be assassin. Right. To protect his family, and he fought to protect yours. Uh, no. No. I tried to fight it in court, uh, but uh, lost. With with the court system, because mm. when you try to fight it, then you can appeal it and go to the next court, and then you, you end up going to the Supreme Court, no? So is it three... I can't remember now if, if it went to the district court from the city court, but I had another um, experience uh, that was before the assassination where I had uh, been in an interview with a guy who chose to, to publish the interview without me having seen, the, seen it. Okay, because the process is if you sit down with journalists, they take your interview and then they come back to you and show you what they've yes, wrote, you've yeah. said. They've said, is this okay? Yeah, so... so um, he talked about Islam and I'm, I think... Four times during the interview, I said that, uh, of course, I'm not talking about all Muslims. Yep. I'm talking about the general picture. And then one time I forgot it. And then I was accused of racism. And I had to, to go all the way to the Supreme Court to be acquitted. Am I right that you explained in your early court case the first court that you wasn't aware he ha he hadn't come to you no. so then it was kicked out but then they retried you again is that no. right and then they took you to the next court up so they continued their prosecution and then in the end i was acquitted in um a city court and uh, how was it convicted in the superior court yep and then acquitted in the Supreme Court. So they had three goes. Three. They tried three times. It took a lot of time. 
th this is what I want to understand because when you're living your life, what's it like going through those court cases? Is it a drain? Was it stress? Is it pressure? Do you think that's the reason they do it? To tie you up? I look at, I've looked at some cases for myself over the years and thought, <clears throat> you, you can't... I don't know. I, I don't know. But uh, the funny thing is that the assassination attempt came a month after the acquittal in the Supreme Court. So I'm sure they'd been waiting to see if they could get me uh, on a legal charge. And when they couldn't... Um, they decided to kill me. If they could have got you on a legal charge and you ended up in the prison system, they could have killed you there anyway. No, mm, uh, yeah, they could. So he was acquitted and then four weeks later they've attempted an assassination. What, um, what message would you have as someone who's lived a life now where you've started on one political view, you've awoken to it, you've learned... You've spoke out, you've faced threats, you've faced dangers. What, what message would you have to anyone who's, want, who's feeling that something's wrong, but they're too scared to speak up? Don't be scared. Because if you're scared, and if you live by being scared, the rest of your life will be miserable you'll start hating yourself. So better, better stand up for what you believe and fight and never give up. That is my advice. I'd like to end this interview on that advice because I believe there's a hell of a lot of people who are going to be watching these interviews, who listen to these stories, who are scared. And I think better than anyone, when you listen to someone's life story who's gone through it all and they're still standing fighting, it's an inspiration. So, Lars, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank hey, you. Thank you very much. If you you know we're censored, they don't want people to listen to the people I talk to. They, they want to silence us all. We rely on you, the people, to get our message out there. Please like, subscribe, share it, put it on all your platforms. Stick it in your WhatsApp group, stick it on your email list and pump our interviews out. Thank you for watching. Cheers, Lars. Cheers. Wonderful. Carry on watching for more interesting guests. I'll talk to anyone. I'll debate anyone. I'll hear anyone's story. If you want to help me along that way, it's not free. I need your support. If you can support my family, that gives me my peace of mind. It means I can continue to do the work I do. You can do so at www.supporttommy.com. I appreciate every bit of support, as do my children. Gives me the ability to fly them out here to see me so I can stay in constant contact with them. I'm de-platformed and I'm censored, so I need you. I need you to share this content. And make sure you stay tuned for upcoming weekly guests. Interesting guests, exciting guests. I'm Tom Robson, and this has been my podcast, Silence. <laughs>